You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, Twelve Lectures, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 10, given in Munich on the 7th of December 1909, and entitled The I, The God Within, and The God of Outer Manifestation. From the whole spirit of our anthroposophical work over the course of the year, you will have noticed that the purpose of this work lies not in creating something instantly sensational, but rather in calmly following the facts of spiritual events. Such knowledge can also be valuable for our lives. The day is not well served by always speaking about immediate matters. Spiritually, the day is better served by acquiring knowledge of the wider connections of life. Basically, our own individual life is dependent on the great events of existence, and we can only rightly judge our own lives by gauging them against the greatest phenomena of life. This is why, having over the seven years that the German section has existed, spent four years laying the foundations of our outlook and knowledge, we made efforts over the last three years to deepen this fundamental knowledge in relation to world-encompassing issues. In what you have gleaned from considerations shared in the various lecture cycles, you will have seen that this includes the recent contemplations of the Gospels. This was not only because the contents of the Gospels bring much home to us, but also because in considering them we learn vitally applicable aspects of human nature. For these reasons, let us today speak about the Gospels and their wide applicability to individual human lives. The Gospels are ever less considered by science to be historical documents about the greatest individuality ever to have acted upon human evolution, Christ Jesus. The attitudes toward the Gospels were quite different in the first Christian centuries and throughout the Middle Ages from those prevailing nowadays. The Gospels are now considered four contradictory documents, and nothing seems more obvious than the view that queries how can four documents constitute an historical record when they contradict one another to the extent that the four Gospels do in attempting to convey to us what took place in Palestine at the beginning of our era. Were human thinking not so intent on disregarding the most salient facts, something might occur to it. One could, for instance, reflect, it doesn't take much to recognize that the Gospels are contradictory in the sense of how they are conceived today. Any child could do so, one would like to suggest. One could, however, say, now that the Gospels are largely available to all, everyone can engage with them. There was a time before the invention of the printing press when these records were not freely obtainable and were only read by a minority. 
and this minority was precisely those at the pinnacle of spiritual life. They brought the contents closer to the populace in a form comprehensible to them. One might ask, was this spiritual and educated elite really so foolish that they could not see what every child could understand? That is, that the Gospels are indeed, in terms of today's outlook, contradictory. Were we to follow this question, we would immediately notice something else, namely that people's entire realm of feeling toward the Gospels was then quite differently attuned from today's critical reason, whose modus operandi it is to think as inculcated by external reality. It is this thinking that seeks to opine about the Gospels, and it will be easy for such thinking to identify contradictions. It is childishly easy to do so. How did the cultural-spiritual elite, who had access to the Bible, reconcile what are today called contradictions? Those people of old had developed an extraordinary and today barely imaginable sense of awe when reading of the great Christ event recounted in the four Gospels. Strangely enough, because they had the Bible, they felt all the more moved to honor and value accounts of this event. How is that possible? It comes about because those old arbiters of the Gospels focused on something quite different from today's readers. The critics of today are no more clever than someone, let's say, who takes a single aspect photo of a bouquet of flowers. They go about the world with their photo. People note what they see on the photo and think they have an exact image of a bunch of flowers. Then someone else comes along and shows them a photo of the other side of the bouquet. This changes the picture, and when shown to the same people, they say, this cannot be the same bunch, the pictures are contradictory. Even when photographed from four angles, each photo is quite different from the next. Yet they all illustrate the bouquet. This is how observers of the Gospels used to feel. They would say the four Gospels are for depictions of the same events, and because this is so, we are given a more complete impression of a single life. Though they are dissimilar, once we are in a position to see this from four perspectives, we will have gained a more complete picture of events in Palestine. These people felt impelled to say, we must look aloft with all the more humility and face of the events in Palestine on hearing of them from four quarters, because this event is so mighty that it cannot be fathomed on the basis of a single portrayal. We must be grateful that the four Gospels are available to us and that we can view this lofty event from four angles. Yet we need to understand how these four views arose, and once we know this, we can form a view of the four Gospels that is also available to every single person. What we call the Christ event is an immeasurable occurrence in the spiritual evolution of humankind. How can we place what took its course in Palestine into the context of the entire evolution of humankind? We can place it in that we say, all spiritual development and human experience preceding this event flowed together, flowed into the event in Palestine in order to flow onward 
as a combined tide. As part of this we have, to name but the few, the ancient Hebrew teachings as imparted to us in the Old Testament. This is one tributary stream. It was flowing while the event of Palestine was in progress. Then there was another spiritual stream, that originating in Zarathustra. This also flowed into the great stream of Christianity, the primary combined current flowing throughout the world. Then there is what we can call the Eastern or Oriental spiritual stream that found its greatest representative in Gautama Buddha. This also flowed into that vast confluence and onward into the future. These individual streams are now combined within Christianity. This will not reveal to you what Buddhism is today, a Buddhism that reheats Buddha's teachings of 600 years before the Christian era. It joined in flowing into Christianity. Likewise, what is today taken from ancient Persian records and from that point onward tries to show the being of Zarathustra will not demonstrate to you what Zarathustrianism really is because he who taught in ancient Persia, as recorded in contemporary documents, has evolved further and has offered up his contribution to pass into the spiritual life of humanity, the stream of Christianity. We must seek Zarathustrianism within the onward stream of Christianity. In seeking to imagine the core circumstances of our subject, we must ask ourselves, how exactly did these three tributaries, Buddhism, Zarathustrianism, and ancient Hebrew lore, converge within Christianity? If we wish to understand how Zarathustrianism joined this spiritual current, we need to remember that the individual we refer to as Zarathustra was the great teacher of the second post-Atlantean cultural epoch, who first taught the so-called original Persian people and who was repeatedly incarnated. Rising ever higher with each incarnation, he reappeared some six hundred years before our era as a contemporary of the great Buddha within the mystery schools of ancient Chaldean Babylonian culture. Here he was reincarnated as the teacher of Pythagoras, who went to Chaldea in search of just such spiritual enlightenment. This Zarathustra, who some six hundred years before our times appeared under the name of Zeratos or Nazarathos, was then reborn at the beginning of our calculated era in the form of a child born to parents called Mary and Joseph, as told to us in the Matthew Gospel. We call this child of Mary and Joseph, the so-called Bethlehem parents, one of two Jesus' children born at this same time. In this way we have transplanted the individuality who was the bearer of Zarathustrianism into a significant spiritual stream. This was not the only stream to re-emerge into life and to flow onward in a new Christian form. There were other spiritual currents and several of these had to join at that time. For instance, it had to transpire that Zarathustra was born into a body offering the physical configuration that would enable him 
as a being so highly evolved over many incarnations, to develop the qualities essential to this particular incarnation. For we must always remember the axiom that however lofty the individual descending to incarnation were no suitable body to be found, those highly developed faculties would find no fitting instrument through which their individuality could be expressed. A specially structured brain was essential for Zarathustra to fully exercise his faculties, and this entailed being born into a body inherited from forebears, which could furnish him with an instrument matched in its attributes with his individuality. Not only did it have to be ensured that the Jesus child incarnating, as described in the Matthew Gospel, had such a highly evolved soul-spiritual configuration that it could perform the mighty deeds ordained to be carried out, but also that this soul would be born into a physical body made perfect for it through inheritance. Just such a physical brain had to be available to Zarathustra. That a perfectly suited physical body could be elaborated was due to the ancient Hebrew peoples and constitutes their contribution to Christianity. A body with characteristics most perfectly suited as a physical instrument was to be elaborated through purely physical heredity. For this to succeed, many earlier generations had to be prepared so that the salient characteristics could be inherited in a body at the beginning of our calculated era. Now, we should like to create a picture as to how this life flowed into the mainstream of our present spiritual life. Just as we saw the mission of Zarathustra within Christianity, let us now look at the mission of the ancient Hebrew people within the total culture of our earth. It has to be said that the further spiritual research advances, the more does it confer ever greater validity on the Bible than does present-day cultural history. What is excavated in the latter appears slightly childish in comparison with what is recounted in the Bible, which only has to be read in the right light to be understood. In the eyes of genuine spiritual research, it is the more correct version. Among other things, it is also correct to say that later Jewry stems from one ancestor progenitor, Abraham or Abram. Behind this fact lies something thoroughly rightful that when we go back over the generations, we arrive at an original ancestor to whom the spiritual world granted quite exceptional qualities. What were these qualities? If we want to understand with which exceptional capabilities he was endowed by the spiritual world, we will briefly have to remind ourselves about what was recently said here. Going back into ancient times, we see that human beings had different soul qualities, qualities we would now describe as dimly clairvoyant in contrast with today's consciousness. People were unable to see the world with the reasoned self-consciousness of today, but they still retained the ability to see what was spiritual, what manifested as spiritual facts and beings in their surroundings. This vision because it occurred within subdued, dampened consciousness, was more akin 
to a living dream, albeit a dream vitally linked with reality. This ancient clairvoyance was to become ever weaker and weaker to the end that human beings would gradually connect with outwardly oriented perspectives and reasoning such as ours today. All human evolution is a kind of education. Individual capacities are mastered gradually over time. The modern way of observing, say, a flower with normal consciousness, does not perceive the astral body weaving around the plant, whereas an observer from antiquity would have seen this astral body shimmering around it. Humanity had to be brought up so as to arrive gradually at our modern perception of sharply contoured objects, and this entailed loss of clairvoyance. A definitive axiom pertains in spiritual development. Every developmental step in humankind must originate in an individuality. Capacities that are to become common to a great number of people must, shall we say, be inaugurated within one individual. Faculties connected with turning away from clairvoyant vision to judging the world in terms of measure, number, and weight specifically those not concerned with seeing into spiritual realms, but with calculating the sensory world, were implanted by the spiritual world into the individuality known as Abraham or Abram. He was chosen to be the first to cultivate characteristics bound in the most inward sense with the physical brain. Not for nothing was Abraham called the inventor of arithmetic, that facility to order and evaluate the world in terms of measure and number. He was one of the first to extinguish the old dim clairvoyance, while his brain predisposed him toward such faculties as require a brain, and these faculties come to the fore. Such was the crucial and potent mission allocated specifically to Abraham. This faculty, laid upon Abraham from out of the spiritual world, as potential, just as all potential must be, was to be ever more perfected. You can easily understand that everything appearing in the world must evolve. In just such a way was the potential to view the world through a physical brain to evolve gradually. The evolution of this faculty took place through ensuing generations in that what was bequeathed to Abraham was transmitted to following generations down the years. But something additional had to occur that was different from the old transferal of a mission from an older to a younger generation, because other mission transferals were not bound to a physical brain. Those greatest of missions were not bound to a physical attribute. Let us take Zarathustra. What he offered his pupils was an enhanced clairvoyant vision of a far higher order than that possessed by other humans of the time. This was not bound to a physical instrument, but was transferred from teacher to pupil. That pupil would become a teacher and in turn transfer their knowledge to subsequent pupils and so on. Here, on the other hand, it is not a case of teachings or a means to clairvoyant vision, but of something inherently brain-based. A capability such as this can only be transplanted into later times through heredity. 
This is why it fell to Abraham to pass on what could only be handed down through heredity. In other words, the excellence of Abraham's physical brain configuration was intended to be inherited by subsequent generations. Because his mission consisted in evolving a physical brain to ever greater perfection, it follows that each generation improved it to an ever more refined state of perfection. Thus Abraham's mission is concerned with the propagation of ever more perfected brain attributes over the course of physical evolution. Something else is connected with this contribution by the culture of the ancient Hebrew folk, something we will understand by setting out the following. If we take other human beings in antique cultures with their dim clairvoyance, we will say, how did they receive their most valuable gift? What did they venerate most highly in the world? They would receive this in the form of inspiration that lit up within them. Unlike today, research was not required. Today, scientific knowledge is advanced by external research and experimentation, and its laws are based on a synthesis of observable facts. This is not how the archaic human reached knowledge necessary to them. No, it would light up within in the form of a vision. Their soul had to give birth to it inwardly. Their gaze would turn inward, away from the outer world, when they wished to allow the highest truths to inspire them, to illumine them inwardly. This was to become different in the people deriving their mission from Abraham. Abraham was to bring humanity precisely what was observable and calculable. When a follower of another culture built on clairvoyance would look to their highest divinity, they would say, I am thankful to God who manifests within me. I turn my gaze away from outer things, and God is most often present within me when I, without turning to the outer world, allow the inspiration of the Godhead to irradiate my inner being. By contrast, the people of Abraham were to express it thus, I will renounce the inspiration that merely emanates from within. Instead, I will prepare myself to direct my gaze toward my environment. I wish to observe what is manifested in air and water, in mountain and plain, in the starry heavens. This is where my gaze will be directed and thereafter I will be in a position to consider all these as they exist in relation to each other. I want to be able to combine those outer phenomena in pursuit of a comprehensive thought. Once I have gathered what is observable in the outer world and have compressed it into a single thought, then I will call everything that the outer world tells me Yahweh or Jehovah. I will receive what is highest via a manifestation, a revelation speaking through and throughout the external world. Such was the mission of the Abrahamic peoples, to bequeath to humanity what it received as revelation from the outer world, in contrast to all that other cultures could proffer. That is why this instrument of spiritual life, corresponding in its configuration with external revelation, had to be inheritable, just as earlier soul qualities corresponded with the revelations they received from within. 
Now we may ask ourselves what transpired when the ancient seers gave themselves up to inner revelation. They turned their gaze away from all things exterior, because nothing existing in that external world could tell them about spiritual realms. They even turned away from sun and moon, listening only to their inwardness, as the great mysteries of the world were disclosed to them. Visions would arise within, revealing how the wide universe is formed. What they knew of the stars and their movements of spiritual worlds, all this was not acquired through outer observation by those adherents to ancient cultures. In this way, too, they knew of Mars, Saturn, and so on, as the nature of these stars was revealed to their inner vision. The laws of the cosmos that were written in the stars, so to speak, were simultaneously written into the inner souls of those human beings, revealed within through inspiration. As these cosmic laws, ruled by starry throngs, had been revealed through inward vision, so were the laws governing the outer world now to be won through calculation and manifest in the people of Abraham. To this end, heredity had to be guided in pursuit of cerebral qualities capable of calculating the world aright. As wonderful lawfulness implanted as an aptitude in Abraham, these attributes were to be transmitted and perfected through the generations in a way corresponding with the great laws of the cosmos. Brains and their internal configuration had to be inherited which were formed such that they reflected those mighty numeric stellar laws found above in the cosmos. This is why Jehovah says to Abraham, You will see the generations of your descendants who are arrayed as the numbers of stars in the heavens, as the stars on high are arrayed in harmonious numeric relationship. So shall the generations be deployed down the ages according to numerically calculable laws. That is, these generations shall inherently bear such laws within, just as the laws of the stars reign in the heavens. There are twelve constellations. A reflected image of these was to arise within each of the twelve tribes of Abraham, so that the corresponding faculties, implanted as aptitudes in Abraham, could flow down through the generations. Through the organic, onward evolution of these peoples, an image of celestial proportion and number was to be created. This has been translated by one translator of the Bible as, Your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars in heaven, whereas this passage should in all truth mean, Your descendants shall be well ordered in their blood relations, such that they form a reflected image of the laws governing the stars in the heavens. Oh, the Bible is profound. What we find in the Bible today is colored by later world views, so that, quote, your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars in heaven, quote, close quote, should in truth be translated somewhat as, all will be regulated in your descendants, so that, for instance, twelve tribes will issue forth that reflect the twelve-fold constellations of the zodiac in the heavens. Individual traits were to come to the fore and continually express Abraham's mission, within which they existed. I receive my mission as a gift from my surroundings, not as something lighting up within. 
What I have to contribute to the world is given to me from without. It is wonderfully depicted in the Bible how Abraham's task is intended to be bequeathed him from the external world, in contrast to ancient revelations received from within. What is the task of Abraham to be? Abraham's mission, it is, to furnish through bloodlines what flows down to Christ Jesus. Into this the entire spirituality of a certain stream is to be transferred, intended to have the effect of an external gift, as if donated from without. Abraham was to give the world the ancient Hebrew people. That is his mission. If this is to represent the whole nature of his mission, the gift of this people itself, being his mission, needed to be expressly given to him from an external source. Abraham had a son, Isaac. He was to be sacrificed, as is related in the Bible. As Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, his son was re-bequeathed him, restored to him by Yahweh. What is bequeathed him in that moment? The whole people stems from Isaac. Had Isaac been sacrificed, there would be no Hebrew people. This entire people was therefore given to Abraham as a gift. His offering of Isaac expresses beautifully the nature of this gift. The people as a whole is itself Abraham's mission, and with the return of Isaac he also receives the entire Hebrew people as a gift from Yahweh. Such is the depth of the depictions in the Bible, each corresponding in their every detail with the great and majestic inner nature of the onward course of human evolution. Piece by piece did the ancient Hebrew people have to discard what other cultures still espoused, their old atavistic clairvoyance. This ancient clairvoyance was bound to faculties originating in spiritual worlds, and these visionary faculties were each designated according to their nature with terms taken from the constellations. The last of the faculties relinquished in exchange for the ancient Hebrews being donated to Abraham was that connected with the constellation of Aries the ram. This is the reason for a ram being sacrificed in place of Isaac. It is the outer expression of the last of the clairvoyant faculties being sacrificed so that Abraham could be given the Hebrew people. This is how the people were chosen to develop especially those capacities based on observing the external world. Among all these, remnants of the atavistic vision of old would emerge, necessitating those ancient Hebrews to ever and again exclude what was not pure in their blood what did not contribute to outward-directed observation, anything reminiscent of atavism, anything inherited from other cultures constantly had to be expelled. Here we touch upon a subject that is hard to describe nowadays because it contains a truth as foreign to modern thinking as it is possible to be. Yet it is a truth, and as such it is fair to challenge those who have been involved in our branches for some time. They should be able to bear facts from which habitual thinking slightly retreats. We should be clear that certain groups of people of old retained into later times antiquated faculties for knowledge, 
contained in their souls as visionary traits and connecting them closely with spiritual beings. These would reveal themselves to their inner sight. This would be expressed in certain people, those who retained declining attributes from remote times, in that they represented a lower form of the connection with the spirituality of the external world. Whereas genuine seers usually connect with the wide universe through spiritual intuition and inspiration, those lesser human beings were enthralled in decline, in the decadence of this ancient bond with the outer world. They were not independent. The power of their eye was not able to assert itself, but neither was their clairvoyance of an order as high as that of old. Human beings of this kind would always surface, and an affinity between their physical organs and old organs of clairvoyance would persist. And now follows the fact that will sound so strange. What we could term ancient clairvoyance, that inward lighting up of world mysteries, must in some way have found entry into souls. We need to imagine that human beings were subject to inward streaming radiations. Humans of old were unaware of this inward bound radiating, yet once the radiation had taken place and had irradiated their inner vision, it was perceived as their ancient inspiration. Certain radiating emanations flowed into human beings from their surroundings, these later metamorphosed within the person. In antiquity, these radiating forces were purely spiritual, perceptible to the genuine seer as pure astral etheric rays. Later, however, this pure spiritual radiation, as it were, dried out, became increasingly dense to the point where it became etheric physical radiation. What then became of them? Hair is what they became. Hair is a result of ancient centripetal radiation. What is now human hair was once spiritual radiation, raying inward from the periphery. Today's hair is the desiccated astral etheric radiation of ancient times. Such facts are only preserved where purely external scriptural transmission of ancient truths have persisted. In Hebrew, the words for hair and light are designated by practically the same script character because an awareness of the connection between the astral in-streaming of light and of hair used to persist. Altogether, archaic Hebrew script contains the greatest truths in the words themselves. We can confirm that the onward evolution of humanity is a reality. In people possessing the declining atavistic capacities, these radiations were transformed, became desiccated, so that no fresh abilities were evolved for them. They were connected in ancient fashion with what was new and yet not really connected, due to the dryness, in quotes, of the inward flowing radiation. These people were robustly hirsute, whilst those having evolved onward tended to be less so because new capacities arose in those faculties, which later consolidated into hair. Science will only arrive at such significant conclusions long ages hence. They exist in the Bible, 
The Bible is far more erudite and wise than present-day science, which is still at something of a preliterate, childlike stage. Just read the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob has moved slightly ahead in terms of his more modern faculties. Esau has remained at a previous stage, and compared with Jacob is something of a dunce. When brought before their father Isaac, their mother has, with false hair, exchanged the brothers, so that Isaac will confuse his younger son with Esau. This is intended to show that those ancient Hebrew people still inheriting something of other cultures were to be expelled. Esau is banished. Through Jacob the necessary facility for external synthesis was disseminated down the generations. Just as the slightly retarded faculties and figure of Esau had to be expelled, in Joseph likewise there remained a legacy of atavistic clairvoyance and he was banished to Egypt by his brothers. He had dreams and could descry world events, abilities not to be included in Abraham's mission. He was therefore exiled to Egyptian lands. So we see how a stream works its way among ancient Hebrew peoples, a stream grounded in generational bloodlines, and how gradually archaic inheritance is ejected. This was the legacy of the ancient Hebrew people. Inheritance down the generations was to be increasingly perfected, creating an instrument from which could evolve a body to be yielded up for that individuality to be reincarnated. Where once this person could receive direct inspiration from within, it now had to receive it from without even direct revelations, received inwardly by other peoples, now had to be sought from external sources. This entailed the Jewish people, led by Joseph, traveling to another nation, still receptive to inner illumination. Here Joseph was initiated into the Egyptian mysteries, and this enabled the people by external means to gain the knowledge they needed about the singularities of the spiritual worlds. Even their moral laws were obtained externally in this way and not as illumination from within. Such was the mission of the ancient Hebrews. Having acquired all they needed from this external source, they traveled back to Palestine. Now, having undergone what they had, the ancient Hebrew people were to show how all that had evolved through the generations was ultimately to give birth to what would become the body of Jesus at the very confluence of the ancient Hebrew stream with that of Christianity. Remember how we discuss the evolution of capacities within the individual, whose life can be viewed in seven-year periods. The first of these is between birth and the change of teeth at around age seven, when the physical body is simply building its structures. The second seven-year period, to sexual maturity, sees the ether body actively cultivating growth of these structures. Their structure is determined to age seven, then their predetermined structures merely grow. Between fourteen and twenty-one, the astral body is the main element under development. We see how the actual human eye capital is only born and becomes independent at twenty-one. 
So we see how through definite time spans within the individual, the birth of the I itself comes about. This is also how elements gradually evolved within a people, one that would, as a people, provide a body for the most perfected I. Evolution had to proceed in such a way that what takes place in the individual over years here had to evolve from generation to generation. Each successive generation had to further unfold what it inherited from an earlier generation. Nothing can suddenly unfold within a generation. To explore why this is the case for occult reasons would take us too far. But we can recall quite a simple phenomenon. Remember that heredity can work in such a way that certain traits are not directly inherited, but can jump a generation. A grandchild may resemble their grandfather in some respect. In certain respects, this was the case with the continuing inheritance of attributes within the ancient Hebrew people. A generation would be missed. A single developmental phase in the individual would correspond with two in terms of generation. We can therefore say that the people had to evolve over generations in a way similar to an enormous individual. From birth to the change of teeth would take twice seven generations, fourteen generations. A second time span was to follow in which twice seven generations correspond with the period from change of teeth to reproductive maturity. A third such span of twice seven generations followed, representing ages 14 to 21, when the astral body is particularly prominent. Only then can an eye come to birth. The eye could only be born in the ancient Hebrews once three times twice seven, which is three times fourteen generations, had passed. Anyone wanting to describe to us the body granted to Zarathustra as an instrument would have to show how over the course of three times twice seven generations the potentialities bestowed on Abraham had evolved in a way that after three times fourteen generations an eye could be born into his threefold embodiment. This is what the writer of St. Matthew's Gospel does. He describes three times fourteen generations, from David to the Babylonian captivity and those from Babylon to the birth of Jesus. In the Matthew Gospel we have something from the depths of knowledge that points to the mission of the old Hebrew people. How over time the forces were evolved that made it possible that a body from among this people could be host to a perfected eye such as Zarathustra had attained. If we now look at the destiny of these archaic Hebrew peoples, we will find that the captivity affecting an entire people corresponds with the time after age 14 that prepares an individual for life itself, when what will later be carried out between 14 and 21 wells up in the form of youthful hopes. This captivity represents the time when the astral body of the Hebrew peoples came to the fore, where what had been implanted over fourteen previous generations gave impetus to their mission. This is the reason why the Israelites were led into captivity in Babylon, the very place where six hundred years before our era 
Zaratos or Nazarathos, then in incarnation, was a teacher in the occult schools of Babylon. The main leading Israelites came into contact with these occult schools and with Zaratos, that great teacher of archaic times. He became their teacher, was allied with them, and this is where they took up the mighty impulses he propounded, which had the effect that this people was prepared over fourteen generations for the birth of Jesus. Events then followed, about which you are aware. Then we see something remarkable. We see in Matthew's Gospel a law of the spiritual realm being observed that will increasingly be recognized as an important law applicable to all life. That is the law that what takes place earlier is later recapitulated at a higher level. Modern science reiterates this in somewhat distorted form by maintaining that individual entities repeat in short order what has befallen lower species over longer time spans. The writer of Matthew's Gospel demonstrates this in a wonderful manner by saying, The I individuality of Zarathustra was to be incarnated in a body prepared over ages within the people of Abraham. Abraham went forth from Ur in Chaldea, from the original source of Babylonian culture, making his way through Asia Minor to Palestine. His descendants were led southward, following Joseph's dreams, and having there absorbed many an Egyptian cultural impetus, returned to Canaan. This represents the destiny of an entire people. The whole population is led through Canaan over to Egypt and finally returns to Canaan. This folk destiny is to be repeated in short form. In the place where an I-individuality is to be born, for whom a corporeal vessel is being prepared following potentialities laid down in Abraham, that particular I takes its start from Chaldea. It was in Chaldea that Zarathustra in his previous incarnation had been a mystery school teacher. His spirit was bound to Chaldea. Which route does the soul of Zarathustra take when approaching incarnation in Bethlehem? Zarathustra remained connected with those magi who were initiated in the mystery centers of Chaldea. They will have recalled how they heard from their teacher that he would see them again, that to the soul of the once Zarathustra would be ascribed that golden star which at the appointed time was to take its course toward Bethlehem. As the time approached, they followed the route taken by that soul, thereby reprising the path taken by the old Hebrew peoples. Just as Abraham took the path to Canaan, so did the star. In other words, the soul of Zarathustra followed that path to Canaan. The three magi followed the star Zarathustra to the place where he would be born into the body predestined him from out of the Abrahamic people. Zarathustra, the I-individuality of Zarathustra, thus repeated in spirit the path taken by Abraham to its destination in Palestine. Thereafter the Hebrew people were to seek a path over to Egypt, directed by the dreams of the older Joseph. Now the I, born into the Jesus child of Bethlehem, again prompted by the dreams of another Joseph, 
is directed to flee to Egypt by the same path taken by the Abrahamic peoples through the dreams of the older Joseph. The eye of Zarathustra repeats in spirit the entire destiny undergone by the ancient Hebrews, now in the body of Jesus, fleeing to Egypt and returning again to Palestine. In this we see the spiritual recapitulation of the path taken by the soul of Zarathustra, and this reflects the archaic Hebrew folk's destiny. All this is reliably described in the Gospel of St. Matthew on the basis of knowledge of the law that what appears at a more advanced stage is a brief recapitulation of what has gone before. Oh, these Gospels depict most profoundly the event at the start of our calculated era. This event is of such mighty import that the writers of the four Gospels will have said, each of us is only capable of depicting such an immense event from our own perspective. Each of these four describes this one event according to their limited abilities. Just as we would describe a being from four perspectives, yet only achieve one image, relying on a composite image of contradictory accounts to achieve an understanding of an overarching being, just so did the writer of the Matthew Gospel, as an initiate, rely on what he had understood of the law of three times twice seven in the preparations within the mission of the ancient Hebrew peoples for the body that would host the vast eye of Jesus of Nazareth. With consciousness of his initiation, the writer of the Luke Gospel wrote how by other means the stream of Buddhism flowed into Christianity in order to continue into the future within it. The other evangelists wrote on the basis of knowledge gleaned from the conditions of their respective initiations. The events they describe are so vast that we must be grateful that we can approach them from four perspectives through the results of four initiations. Just a few observations on the spiritual genesis of Christianity were to be mentioned today to indicate how our knowledge of the world increases once we begin to comprehend this greatest of all events in human history. The intention was to awaken a mere inkling as to just how deeply this event is to be approached and how profound are the Gospels once we learn to read and understand them. The end of Lecture 10